This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Hi, I'm Otavia Zappala, and this is episode two of Missing Alyssa. If you haven't done so already, I suggest you listen to episode one before you continue. In this episode, I want to answer the following question. Was Michael Turney a loving father figure to Alyssa, or was their relationship an unhealthy one? In order to get some perspective, you should know about Alyssa's complicated family structure, because that plays a major role in this case. Alyssa's mother, Barbara, had three children in three different relationships over the course of her life. Alyssa was her second child. She was born to Barbara Farner and Stephen Stram while the couple was married. Before that, Barbara had a son, John, with a boyfriend when she was just 19. When Alyssa was three years old, Barbara met Michael Turney, who was 10 years older than her. They got married, and Michael legally adopts John and Alyssa. Like Barbara, Michael also has two major relationships behind him when entering into this marriage. At the time he marries Barbara, he already has three sons from his first wife. His second marriage was very brief, and it produced a daughter which Michael never recognized as his own. So Mike and Barbara formed a large, blended family of seven. Three years later, they have a child together. Her name is Sarah Turney. Sarah and I went to visit several of her childhood homes in North Phoenix. So Alyssa and I, at one point, shared the bedroom across the way, which is a little bit larger. And then um, we shared this bedroom eventually. And my mom was close in age to my brothers. You know, she was in her late 20s and they were early 20s, at least. Gosh, I hadn't thought about it. Well, yeah, because she was like, she was 10 years younger than Mm -hmm. your dad. Yeah. Still, though. So their friends would be like, dude, your mom's hot all the time. And they'd be like, shut up. (laughs) What did she do? Did she work outside the home? She did. She was a loan officer for a little bit. Um, I also know she worked for Mattel, and she would bring home, like, all the weird toys to my brother, like the G.I. Joes without heads and stuff. But So he had, like, tons of toys. They were just really weird. That's so funny. Um, Yeah, but then when they got together and she, um, there were so many kids, I think, you know, she probably just ended up staying home because they Mm -hmm. they bred Huskies for money at one point. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I remember that. We had Huskies running around everywhere, and she took in kids from the neighborhood and babysat. So this was her first home. This was your first home. This was my first home. It was her first home, you know, with your dad. Mm -hmm. So Alyssa moved in here when they got married. Mm -hmm. Shortly after Sarah is born, to everyone's shock, Barbara is diagnosed with cancer. In less than a year, the mother of three tragically gives in to the disease at the young age of 34. At the time of her mother's death, Alyssa was eight years old, and her little sister Sarah was only four. I can't imagine how painful and confusing it must have been for these three kids to lose their mother so early. Soon enough, the four older boys gradually moved out of the home, and so for the most part, Alyssa and Sarah lived alone with their father, Michael. In episode one, I mentioned that detectives came across some information that caused them to suspect Turney might be involved in his stepdaughter's disappearance. In this chapter, I'm going to go over some of the circumstantial evidence they've collected against him. First of all, when police started actively investigating Alyssa's disappearance around 2008, 
They spoke to many people in her entourage, and many of these people came forward saying that Alyssa had confided in them that Michael had inappropriate sexual behaviors towards her. In particular, one of Alyssa's closest friends gives the most graphic account of this nature. She tells police that Alyssa once told her that she woke up and found Michael gagging her with a sock and trying to strangle her with his hands. When she came to, he stopped. He then told Alyssa that if she were to tell anyone, they wouldn't believe her because of his authority and reputation as a former deputy sheriff. At least one other friend echoed a very similar story. And then there's Alyssa's boyfriend, who describes another incident. We are reenacting his voice based on police statements. She told me one time that he tried sexually abusing her when she was younger. Her dad picked her up early from school one day, driving around. I think the story was pulled over somewhere and, you know, an unoccupied area, something like a desert area, and tried fooling around with her and she got aggressive. One of Alyssa's stepbrothers confirmed this incident too. Once again, here's their reenactment. They're driving, and as they're driving, he, um, he scooted over toward her now, and, and he tried to touch her, and she got, they, they pulled off the road and she got all rough. Alyssa never confided any of these episodes to her younger sister, Sarah, possibly deeming her too young to understand. She didn't ever share that with me. Um... Which I think is kind of odd, because I feel like her number one instinct would have been to protect me. But maybe she knew nothing was happening between me and my dad. Maybe she knew that my dad wasn't doing that to me, and she didn't feel the need to put that burden on me. Maybe if I were an older sister or something like that, she possibly would have come to me. But no, she'd never shared that. And you never felt like you were the object of any inappropriate behavior no. of that nature? No, never, which was why it was so strange to me. But then you bring up the biological factor and, you know, my, my father not being Alyssa's biological father, and, and that's all a little scary. During his lengthy interview with ABC News, Michael Turney defends himself against these heavy accusations. Throughout this episode, we are reenacting his original statements made to ABC News. Absolutely not. These rumors started after my wife died. The Child Protective Services for the state of Arizona came by numerous times, searched my house, took my girls off, and questioned them. I've never done anything to my daughters, either of them, and nor would I. I find it very repulsive. He points out that he was never charged with sexual molestation. Where's that charge at? Maybe they can charge me with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, too. Those are absolute lies. It's very easy, because you get in these stereotypes in our wonderful society. Single male parents always molest their female children. A woman named Diane, who Mike had a relationship with after Alyssa's mom passed away, told police that when Alyssa was 9 or 10, she told Diane that she was having sex with her dad. At the time, Diane did not take Alyssa seriously. But she must have reported the incident to Michael, because in the ABC interview, he tells a reporter that when Alyssa was nine, she was going around telling people that she had had sex. He said he thought that was cute, and he proceeded to explain to her that kissing a boy was not sex. But Alyssa didn't say she had sex with a boy. She told Diane she had sex with her stepfather. In a phone conversation that Mike taped, and that police later seized from his home, 
he can be heard talking to his brother-in-law. Michael says he wishes Alyssa would keep her mouth shut, presumably in reference to her accusing him of abuse. Specifically, he says he had sat down with Alyssa to talk with her, and he told her the following. If you keep pumping information out of here on assumptions, repeating some bullshit somebody else repeated or something else, if you keep talking about everybody, about what goes on in this house, none of which is that, that, that bad, you know it gets blown out of proportion to the point our family is constantly being attacked, Alyssa. Then you're gone. I'm not going to put up with that anymore. I've had enough. What's sad is that Alyssa told at least half a dozen people what was happening in her life and that not a single one of them reported this to authorities. But there are also other, more subtle elements that indicate a strain in the father-daughter relationship. Most of the people interviewed by police stated that they witnessed that Alyssa was being treated differently than her younger sister. Many said that Alyssa felt like an outcast in the family and felt that her father didn't love her, that he gave her a really hard time instead. I asked Sarah if she thought her father was a controlling parent. Not over me, but over Alyssa, yes. Um, and he attributed that to the, the fact that he thought that I made really good decisions and that Alyssa didn't make great decisions. So he always said Alyssa needed a little more supervision, a little more guidance. We continued this conversation over the phone. Which is, it's funny because Alyssa and I made very similar choices. Like both of us, you know, went out and had drinks when we were teenagers and we were both fine and, you know, and it was just two totally different reactions to right. what had happened. He was upset at them for drinking. And then on the other hand, he bought me and my friends beer. He was the cool dad that was there for anything. And which at a certain point, I mean, I guess he was, but that's not good parenting. I also asked her what Michael's relationship with his other stepchild, John, was like. Remember, John is Alyssa's biological brother. My dad was really laid back with John, kind of like he was with me. John okay. was able to do whatever he wanted when he wanted. Michael Turney justifies the behavior by saying that Alyssa had been gullible and overly trusting of strangers since she was a little girl. She was always so curious, not afraid of anything. One of those kind of kids, if you took him into a public place, you had to watch them very closely, scrutinize her completely. It's funny because like, I kind of did the same thing when I was little. <laughs> This is Sarah. You know, like, there was a time where, like, I grabbed a stranger's hand as we were walking through the mall. I was just very trusting. Um, so, yeah, it's funny how he puts emphasis on one child and not the other when yeah. it's very similar circumstances. He's very good at telling stories and painting a picture. Alyssa's maternal aunt Lynette, Barbara's sister, has told me the same thing. He's always, he's always um, said that Alyssa was a handful. She was, you know, she was running around. She was doing this and doing that and you know blah blah this is after my sister had passed away she was hanging out and she was not coming home on time but what if these claims that Alyssa was a problem child were just a pretext for a heightened control of her consider this too an examination of Alyssa's bank account by authorities revealed that while Mike would make generous contributions to Sarah's account he seldom gave Alyssa any money Alyssa who was nearing graduation and adulthood had significantly less money than her 11-year-old sister, despite being very conservative with her spendings. Another focal point of the investigation was Mike's use of video surveillance and audio tapping. Phone calls in his house were being recorded with a passive recording system on the home phone. 
What was especially troubling to investigators was that Michael used to record secret audio and video surveillance of Alyssa, invading her privacy in a multitude of ways. On 2020, we learned of a video recording in which you see Alyssa on the couch, making out with a boy. We knew that there was one by the front door, looking outside at that point. And then at one point I learned about the camera in the vent. Was that in the living room or? Correct, that was in the living room. That was, um, you'll see the footage facing the couch with her and a boy. In reference to that videotape in which Alyssa is with a boy, ABC's John Quinones asks him, you know that sounds awfully voyeuristic, you know, spying on your daughter kissing another boy. Michael's response was, well, I didn't mean to. I went to bed and I turned the tape on like I always do for the cameras at night. And then when I realized that Alyssa still had her friend there, okay, then I got up and told him, you gotta go. Michael says the main reason he got the surveillance cameras was for the protection of his home. He put a camera inside the living room vent, not to hide it, he says, but to avoid making a hole in the wall, since the house was a rental. As far as spying on Alyssa's phone calls, he justifies himself as following. We would have to watch over Alyssa to make sure that she didn't put herself in harm's way. And again, she was talking about running away. So monitor her phone calls, which is not really invading her privacy. She was very upset over that. But, um, I don't know what else to do. I'm a single parent. Her mother's dead. This differential treatment between Michael's biological child and his adopted child is highlighted by the fact that Michael occasionally involved Sarah in his spying games. It was almost like I, he wanted me to be like his partner in crime, if you will, but I was, I think, too young to understand. And I was that little sister who wanted to know everything about my big sister. She was the coolest person I'd ever known. I wanted to listen to all the same music, all the same clothes. I wanted to be there every time she was with her friends and she wouldn't let me because I was four years younger and that's very normal. Um, And yeah, in those cases, my dad would let me listen in on her conversations or kind of show me some of those surveillance tapes that maybe she hadn't seen. Did you think that was normal that he would do those things? I did think that was normal. <laughs> um, unfortunately, yeah, I thought that was really normal. He had all these like spy gadgety things that I thought was super cool when I was a kid, right? Like a like a bionic ear is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So yeah, I want to put it under my sister's door and listen to her conversation with her friend. I think I had said something to the effect of like, oh, Alyssa's in a room with Shay and that sucks and she never wants to play with me. And he was like, here, use this. You can listen to what they're saying. Before you judge Sarah's actions, just remember she was only 11 or 12 at the time and was being led to believe by an authority figure that this was normal behavior. Yeah, at the time I just thought it was like a cool toy and it was a fun game, and but now looking back on it, it's a little strange, for sure. It was almost like I was my dad's little buddy and he was trying to kind of let me in on some of those things, but I didn't think much of it. I didn't know any different, but when it came to me, he didn't do that, so it became very very um, blatant that we were treated differently when I got a little bit older. Michael's preoccupation with Alyssa also extended to her education at school. He claimed that Alyssa had a learning disability, attention deficit disorder, or ADD, and was entitled to special help from her school. The school didn't agree, arguing that this information had not been verified by a medical professional. On top of that, this seems to be in dispute with what her teachers believed, and school records indicate that she was an average student with an average GPA. 
So Mike sues the school district because they didn't comply with his demands. Alyssa was in 10th grade at the time, and the social consequences for her were devastating. And they determined that if she really, truly had this learning disability of attention deficit disorder, that she needed to drive or ride in the smaller school bus um, for the dis- mentally disabled children. Um, and so she would habitually ditch school because she didn't want to ride the short bus. But nobody else who knew Alyssa agrees with Michael's opinion that Alyssa had any learning disability or that she behaved differently from any of her peers. Was this all another way of gaining control over Alyssa's life? By humiliating her in front of her peers, he would have gained territory by putting some distance between Alyssa and her school friends. In one phone call, he's even heard saying that special ed students should be segregated from the others. Here's what Turney declared on that matter. Alyssa had a learning disability, severe enough that by the end of her kindergarten, she couldn't do her numbers. She didn't know her alphabet, and beginning of her first grade, we hired tutors for math and English for Alyssa. She definitely had a learning disability. Well, she was not hyper at school. In fact, we had a lot of report cards saying that she was a good student, but she couldn't comprehend the material. So that was a challenge in itself. Michael seemed very concerned that Alyssa finished high school and even became her tutor when they could no longer afford to hire one. But he said Alyssa simply wasn't interested in school. I tried to explain to her that this was a promise I gave her mama before she died because none of her mother's relatives had ever finished high school or made it up to 18 before they got pregnant. She said that her mama was dead and it wasn't an issue. I was trying to talk her into going to beautician school because I didn't think higher education would be nothing more than frustration for Alyssa. It stands out as strange, though, when you consider that Michael didn't seem nearly as concerned with his biological child's education. Sorry, you skipped school a lot in high school? I didn't skip. My dad would call me out whenever I'd want. Every morning was, do you want to go to school today? And I was 16, so most of the time it was no. I think I went to school at best three days a week, given a good week. Wait, he would tell you that before you went to school? He would ask you? Yeah, like in the morning, he'd come into my bedroom and be like, are you going to school today? Why? So you were so concerned that Alyssa got her education, and and, and with you, it was like, do you even want to go? You have to go. Yeah, and then that was the... crazy. The second day of my senior year, maybe the first day, he walked in and said, then why don't you drop out? I'll take you right now. And I said, okay. And then I went and got my GED a week later. This differential treatment was the cause of many instances of rivalry between Alyssa and her sister. Both of them felt that the other was receiving better treatment. Well, when I was younger, Alyssa and I always thought about who was treated better, and we always thought it was the opposite, right? I always thought that he treated her better because she got all this attention, right? Because she had ADD, supposedly, so he was helping her with homework all the time and really concerned about where she was going when, and I was kind of free to do what I wanted. So I felt a little less paid attention to. Um, and she felt the opposite. Well, Sarah doesn't have these rules and that type of thing, so you love her more. Um, but as I got older, I realized that the freedom he gave me was, was not love. That's not what you do to a child that you love. He didn't care where I was going, when or where, with who. He just didn't care. I think she was a typical teen. This is Alyssa's other maternal aunt, Teresa. I mean, I've been working with teenagers most of my adult life. I don't see, you know, he tried to convince us for years that Alyssa was ADHD. She was headstrong. So was her mama. Alyssa is a lot like my sister Barb. Very headstrong, very stubborn, very outspoken. 
um, Mike's not used to that. So he wanted her diagnosed with ADHD. Whether or not that actually happened or not, I don't know. He says it did. I don't know. Um, Again, as a teenager, I want more freedom. Yeah, they all do. But Michael doesn't agree that she was a typical teen. Well, again, we have test results from the county that say she wasn't. Somehow, the Phoenix PD couldn't find that, though. Isn't that amazing? The results that I paid for $250 to have Alyssa evaluated to see if she had these learning disabilities. So, again, not having all of the information, what would her friends know? I didn't want her friends to think of her as some kind of dummy. To the best of my knowledge, the investigation and search of his home didn't reveal these test results or even confirm the existence of this diagnosis. Regardless of whether Alyssa was diagnosed with ADHD or not, I just want to make it clear that I'm not questioning the validity of ADHD or learning disabilities in general. What I'm trying to convey is the general feeling that several people have expressed that Michael used this diagnosis as a means to assert more control over Alyssa's life and perhaps to justify his intrusions into her life. Several of Alyssa's friends told police that Mike would call her stupid and that they witnessed him being verbally abusive. In one phone call, he reportedly says that she has, quote, a mild form of retardation. Isn't that what a person does to another person who wants to break them down? Make them feel like you need that other person forever and ever? Like you'll never be anything without me. That's what it looks like to me. When asked by John Quinones if he was ever demeaning to Alyssa, Michael replies, That's an absolute lie. I wouldn't allow that with Alyssa, because I'd want Alyssa to have good self-esteem of herself. No, I was never demeaning to Alyssa, but I had to keep... It's kind of a balanced thing, to where you want her to have a normal life. But then she needs to understand her own difficulties. But in a recorded phone call police seized from his home during the search warrant, you can hear Mike venting to a relative about Alyssa's behavior and calling her, quote, a stupid ass fucking bitch. Obviously, he was venting his anger, but still, personally, I could never imagine calling my child those names, no matter how angry I was. Several times, he's recorded calling her stupid, an airhead, One person even hears him call her a retard. This is particularly surprising, given that he had always claimed that he would never allow anyone to call Alyssa stupid or make fun of her. On the contrary, many people who knew Alyssa said that she was very intelligent. Her supervisor at Jack in the Box even said that she was very competent, a quick thinker who did not get distracted easily, and never seemed confused, even during the most hectic days at the restaurant. During my research, several people have spoken of Michael's need for control and his tendency to manipulate situations. Some say he is very persuasive. According to Detective Summershoe, Michael tried to manipulate the investigation into Alyssa's disappearance from the beginning. At one point, there are records of him having preemptively called Child Protective Services to let them know that if Alyssa ever called to complain against him, that they were to consider her statements a lie. It seemed that there was a, he was starting to lose control of Alyssa. He had uh, contacted CPS himself 
as kind of a preemptive strike. And he basically said that if Alyssa calls and says I'm molesting her, it's just because she wants a truck. And you shouldn't believe her. Michael admits that he called CPS to warn them that his daughter might call and accuse him of sexual abuse. But explains he did it because he was tired of being threatened, because Alyssa just wanted to go off and live with her friends. Again, he completely rejects the accusations that he molested his stepdaughter. It never happened. I don't care what her friends say. It just didn't happen. Had it happened, Alyssa could have got a hold of CPS. CPS was more than willing to listen to anything she had to say. To that, ABC News' John Quinones answered, But you had already told CPS. Don't believe her. And Michael replies, I didn't say that. I called them and said, What can a parent do to protect themselves from being coerced into doing something they don't want to do? I'm not going to let Alyssa go with her friend or anybody else to go live. When she's 18, she can leave, because until then, I'm responsible. In a phone call he recorded with his then-girlfriend Diane, he expresses sheer terror at the thought of being investigated for child molestation. In another instance, Michael interfered in the relationship between Alyssa and her boyfriend by telling John that Alyssa was cheating on him. Michael secretly recorded the teens fighting about it. After Alyssa's disappearance, he provided the surveillance tape to detectives to support his statements that John was violent towards Alyssa. Um, Early when we were talking to Michael, he was saying, you need to look at Alyssa's boyfriend. He he was violent towards her. Says Detective Summershoe. So he had sent us a tape of an argument between Alyssa and her boyfriend. No no physical contact between them, but you could see that there there was an argument. when I interviewed Alyssa's boyfriend, uh, you know, and I had kind of standard questions I was asking people, and one of the questions I asked, what's your worst memory of Alyssa? And his response was that, well, there's this one time her dad pulled me aside and said, um, you know, Alyssa's cheating on you. She's, she's seen other guys behind your back. So naturally that, that upset Alyssa's boyfriend. So she had a con- he had a confrontation with her, and he described it. He said, you know, I, I remember because we were out in the carport area, you know, I'm, I'm telling her about this and accusing her of this. She's like, no, I'm not cheating on you. And she got really upset. She ended up throwing the phone against the wall, breaking it. Mm -hmm. I jumped in my car and I I sped away. And so we get that story from the boyfriend. And then we realized that Mike had orchestrated that whole thing. And the the tape shows them having an argument in the carport area, Alyssa throwing the phone against the wall. You could hear his tires feeling away. Then you, the camera switches to an interview view, and Alyssa's in the living room. She's crying. And that, that kind of shows the, the level of manipulation that Mike will go to mm-hmm. to orchestrate things. So he, he created this, this situation and then presented it to the police as evidence that, you know, Alyssa's boyfriend was, was bad news for her and was violent towards her and all that. So uh, when I say he's manipulative, I, I very much can... I have evidence of that. He is someone who um, is very much in control and manipulation and power. It appears that Alyssa did have a brief romantic encounter with a young man named Mike. Mike was her colleague at Jack in the Box. The two are secretly recorded by her stepfather, kissing and petting on the couch. This probably happened while Alyssa and John were together. But aside from this lapse, Alyssa still seemed committed to the relationship. Either way, it's unclear what business Mike would have had getting involved in this situation. In addition, Mike minimized the significance of John's relationship with Alyssa by saying that Alyssa wanted to break up with John, that she was tired of him. He says that John being Alyssa's steady boyfriend was an absolute lie. 
Another element to this aspect of power and control is that Michael habitually drafted parent-child contracts that he then asked Alyssa to sign. When asked about those contracts, Michael tells ABC News that he did it with all of his kids, which, by the way, Sarah denies. It was an experiment of mine that I learned in some class I took, because I didn't have any raising when I was a child. I learned in a psychology class that you make a contract with your children. That sounded like a good idea to me. In some of those contracts, Alyssa signed off on some very inappropriate statements, such as, My father, my attorney, has never physically or sexually abused me at any time. It's unclear why someone would feel the need to put that in writing. I spoke with Katie, one of Alyssa's childhood friends. Katie and Alyssa were very close during middle school. In the later years of Alyssa's life, they grew apart, mainly because Alyssa ended up going to a different high school. But they still lived in the same neighborhood and frequented the same group of friends. She was rebellious, definitely. Um, And I think that his actions caused her to be more rebellious. I don't know if he was like that because of Alyssa's mom and trying to keep her safe from the world so that, you know, I'm not sure. Um, But it was, it didn't seem like a fatherly, it didn't seem like he was really caring. It just seemed like he had to have control over everything that she did. And I really don't know why. There was always something that she was grounded for and so she would never be able to leave. Katie and several others have said that Alyssa was radiant and happy anytime she was at school, at work, or hanging out with her friends. But that when she was at home, she seemed uncomfortable. I remember always having a very strange feeling when I was a kid. She's referring to Alyssa's home. I couldn't have explained it at that point, um, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of a general consensus, I think, from everyone in the neighborhood. We had, um, there were a ton of kids that used to hang out in that area, and we all kind of avoided their house. And Alyssa never wanted to be there either. Every day, there would be something that he would deem it appropriate to just scream at her and hit her, and, you know, she would call me crying about what what she was going through at that point. Um, and my parents, you know, my parents were definitely concerned with how she was being treated. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just a very weird situation. Ultimately, nobody knows for certain what happened to Alyssa Turney. Regardless, the theory of it being a teenage runaway simply doesn't hold up. Alyssa was going to be 18 in less than one year from her disappearance. If she hated living with Michael Turney, soon enough she could have been free to move out start a new life, and never have to speak to him again. She could have finally been free to do whatever she wanted. So then, why not wait just a little longer? Coming up next on Missing Alyssa. I think we avoided a very bad terrorist attack, for lack of a better word. It's my understanding that when my mother died, my father became the man that I know versus the man that my brothers knew. He was obsessed with everything, extremely paranoid about everything um, you could think of. He uh, ultimately blamed the Union for Alyssa's uh, murder. He saw the Union as, uh, I guess, the puppet master of his life, and that was anything bad that happened to him was due to the Union. 
Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Otavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwald. Voice acting by Ben Reichert. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. 